นโมทัสสะกุวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสวัสดีค่ะวันนี้เป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคมเป็นวันที่1ตุลาคมของเดือนมีนาคม Many years ago, and the text there says that reflect on the importance of carrying out the various duties of the monastery. These are what hold us together as a group, enabling us to live together with mutual respect, with concord, and in harmony. It's a. Uh, it's also associated with a, uh, a uh, interesting photograph that you may have the calendar of Ajahn Kevali, the abbot of our monastery in Thailand, Wat Pa Nana Chat, and he's being helped by his uh, some other monks, his friends there, getting himself dressed up and ready for a uh, an induction ceremony as a uh, Tan Pra Kru, which is a, an ecclesiastical uh, position. Uh, Uh, given to certain senior monks in Thailand, and it's not the sort of thing that most forest monks, anyway, uh, most meditation monks, would be really interested. Generally, they tend to shy away from these ecclesiastical, political positions. But Ajahn Kevali, uh, having been invited and offered to accept this position, and consulting with. Uh, other senior members of our community in Thailand came to recognise well, this would actually be helpful for the sangha. This would be, if he was, if he accepted this title, it would mean that doing sangha business and and uh, cooperating with other members of the senior sangha in Thailand would uh, would uh, reap benefits. And so uh, he accepted the position. And so the text there talking about. Uh, Reflect on the importance on carrying out the various duties in the monastery. Is, uh, that's what Ajahn Kivali is doing, and um, something as uh, setting an example for the rest of the community to consider how how much a part of our spiritual life is based on this understanding that whatever. Preferences we might have. We all have preferences. Whatever preferences we have, how to rise above them, how to skillfully rise above our conditioned preferences. So, in effect, me and my way is relativized. Now we all have me and my way. What I want, what I prefer. We all know that experience. 
But it's not always what's right. It's not always what leads to harmony. If everybody was following the motivation to get what I want all the time, we wouldn't have concord, we wouldn't have harmony, we wouldn't hold together as a group, and we wouldn't get on together very well. Uh, this, uh, in fact, I think probably all of us have seen that the addiction to the me and my way is a cause of a lot of our suffering. And so Ajahn Chah was great on this point, and in many ways, many occasions, he would skillfully... Uh, sometimes humorously, sometimes embarrassingly, point out where we are uh, addicted to, we're hung up on, we're committed to this momentum of getting my way. And me feeds on it. Where we find our identity, where we find our sense of security in this conditioned phenomena, this impression, this experience we have of meanness and this demand that I get what I want all the time. We're all familiar with it. Is there an alternative? Well, the Buddha discovered there is an alternative to it. It's called wisdom. And from a wisdom perspective, this me and my way is just like that. It's it's clouds pass across the sky. But because there's some clouds passing across the sky doesn't mean the sun disappears. It may mean that the sun is obscured for a while, but it doesn't mean to say the sun disappears. Well, because there's some ripples across the ocean, that doesn't change the nature of the ocean. The appearance of the ocean changes when a ripple passes across it, but the ocean is the ocean. The heart is the heart. Consciousness is consciousness. This movement in consciousness, this activity which we experience as me and my way, is just that. It's activity, but... If we don't have the wisdom that knows the activity is activity and... Awareness is awareness. If we don't know the difference between awareness and the activity of awareness, if we don't know that, then we're consistently caught up in the activity. It's like being on the surface of the ocean and being thrashed around by the waves and thinking that the world's coming to an end because it's all so terrible. It feels like that at times for us. Why? Because we're caught up in this me and my way. So... So Ajahn Chah, in, in the great tradition of uh, those who are practicing the teachings, not just studying about Buddhism, but actually practicing what the Buddha taught, in the practice tradition there's this interest in learning to, how to rise above, how to relativize me in my way. Not trying to get rid of it, pretending that I don't exist or pretending that I don't have desires, that would be very naive and unhelpful. But how to not be defined by it, how to know the other reality of that in which all this is taking place. So in this verse, Sajjan Shah is uh, talking about how important it is and encouraging us to reflect on the importance of these forms, these duties, these conventions that we have and like coming to chanting on time and honouring our commitments to each other to support each other. Whether we want to do it or not, that's not the point. In fact, a lot of the time when we don't want to do it, that's good. That's, that's why in monasteries in particular, it's basically a course in strategic frustration. So when people ask, you know, young, young Anagarikas are coming here and say, how do I explain to my parents what goes on in the monastery? I say, tell them you're doing a course in strategic frustration. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, 
we're putting ourselves into a frustrating situation. Why? So that we can see where the cracks are. An example I like to give is if any of you, I don't know if any of you have ever been trained in welding, uh, as a test for your welding skills, you get given six sheets of steel and you've got to weld them all together in a cube. You've got to make a cube. All these edges, I don't know how many edges is it. Is it 12? Any mathematicians here in the audience? How many edges you need to weld together to get this perfect cube uh, with a tube coming out of it? Now, when your cube is welded together with a tube coming out of it, then they put it under pressure, they put a pressure hose on it, and then they turn that cube into a ball. Now, if you've welded properly, there's no cracks. If you haven't welded properly, the cracks show up. How do you figure it out? By putting it under pressure. That's, that's how you get tested if you're welding. Well, the principle holds, too, that if you want to undertake the spiritual disciplines before transformation can take place, before the purification of consciousness can take place, there needs to be some very skillful application of pressure to check to see... Do we have the strength in the right places in the right ways? Is there a strong enough patience? Is there strong enough concentration? Is there steady enough attention? Is there persistent enough kindness? You know, are these various vectors of transformation sufficiently developed or not? So, so pressure or frustration is part of it. Now, sometimes you might uh, put yourself strategically in a position that's frustrating, like going on a retreat or formal meditation, sitting there for 40 minutes, deciding not to move, and you're bored to tears, absolutely fed up. What's the point of this tedious carry-on? Just stick with it. And then after 20 minutes, oh, there is point to it. If we hadn't stuck with it, maybe we wouldn't see the point. We do need to be willing to go beyond what me and my way dictates to us, to see the relativity of me and my way. If we're always following the dictates of me and my way, we don't see the relativity of it. In other words, we're driven by this conditioned me and my way. So Ajahn Chah was very keen on using, well, the word he would use to traditionally entire this word, toraman. You often, if you live in the forest monasteries in Thailand, you hear the teachers talking about toraman all the time and Literally, the word translates as torture. And that's basically, you know, you talk to him, what's your meditation technique? And Ajahn Chah would say, Toraman, my technique is to torture you. Well, it's a kind of an unfortunate translation, really. I think, I think frustration is a better translation uh, because what he's trying to do is to frustrate us out of our mistaken belief that we are our conditioned nature that we are our thoughts, that we are our feelings, that we are our body. His experience was he was that in which all of this was taking place. That was the realisation. That is the realisation of realised beings. And so this uh, use of forms, conventions, and doing our duty regardless of whether we want to do it certainly has its place. However, in discussing this, it's also important that we don't fall for the mistake, as sometimes, sadly, does happen in religion, that we get to think that the form is the point. Uh, probably all of us have seen how religions forget that the spirit is the point. 
The transcendence, the transformation, the letting go, that's the point of all of this. The forms uh, are there to support the spirit. The forms are not the point. When When religion becomes just about forms, just about rituals, just about traditions, just about conventions, well then the spirit dies. Yeah, lose the point and you can be busy running through the forms you like as a monk you can turn up on time for all the chanting and you can recite all the suttas and you can bow beautifully and you wear your robes but you can be also very conceited and, and uh, hung up on the forms and the conventions and the traditions so Ajahn Chah if you questioned him also I'm sure would probably have come round to saying that actually, yes, the forms are important, the duties are important, but really the point is the spirit, the letting go, you know, coming to see that the goal of practice is not just the forms, not just the conventions, not just the meditation technique. Concentrating on the breath, yes, that's a form, that's a convention, you know, that's suitable. But the spirit, the point of concentrating on the breath is so that consciousness becomes steadied, becomes settled, becomes intensified. It's like when you concentrate light, normal diffused light becomes laser, which is much more powerful, much more useful. So yes, there's a point to these forms, but the forms themselves are not the ultimate point. Like going to see a doctor, and the point of going to see the doctor is what? To get well. So the doctor gives you some medicine, right? You've got high cholesterol, tried all the alternatives, tried your herbal remedies, tried dieting, tried exercising. You've still got really high cholesterol. This is dangerous, so gives you a, a box of statins, and so you eventually decide, well, seems like it's the right thing to do. So you bring it home, and then in the evening, you start chewing on the cardboard box, Now, that's not the point, is it? Chewing on the packaging of the medicine is not the point. The point is the medicine. And likewise with the Buddha's teaching. Being able to recite the Buddha's teachings, becoming skilled at holding on to a meditation object in itself is not the point. The point is, what is the point? The goal is letting go. Letting go of our identity as me and my way. And that, when there's letting go, well then there's the possibility of living together in harmony and with concord. So, picking up these teachings from whichever direction we get them, even if they're not Buddhist teachings, if they come from some other tradition, however we pick up Spiritual teachings, it's really important that we stop and consider carefully. The forms, yes, and the spirit. And remembering the goal. And remembering the goal, getting it balanced. The use of forms and the use and the place of the spirit, getting these balanced so that we're not so easily swayed. Now we can be swayed by our preferences. like the preference I like to feel sure as a deluded personality I like to feel sure about everything 
I don't like feeling unsure. I don't like feeling uncertain. Yeah, my conditioned mind likes to be clear and confident. And, yeah. But, you know, the reality is often very unsure. The reality we live, the world we live in, you know, like our health is unsure. You never know what's around the corner. Get some real surprises, you know. Even if we're healthy one minute, the next minute we can be unhealthy. Relationships are unsure. How much karma we're carrying from the past is unsure. The environment is unsure. Funny weather that we're having these days. What a mess we've made of it. (laughs) Who knows what's around the corner. So the world we live in is very unsure. So even though on one level I really like, my preferences tell me feeling sure is a good thing, actually that's not helpful. We need to be willing to go against our preferences. We need to be willing to feel unsure. So from listening to the Buddha's teachings, even though they go against our preferences, but the Buddha says when things are unsure, when you don't know something, don't be in a hurry to pretend that you know. Don't be in a hurry to follow your conditioning and say, I know something, when in fact you don't. Rather bring here and now, whole body, mind, awareness to the feeling of I'm not sure yeah. I'm not sure now when we start out in practice we come across these spiritual teachings like the Buddha's teachings it talks about the goal of practice the letting go, the gradual letting go the ultimate letting go of all conceit and ignorance now, this is a possibility not just the Buddha 2600 years ago but all these enlightened beings since all these monks and nuns all these Great teachers, that here we are now in Northumberland in 2016, we still have these teachings, and wow, this goal of practice, there's a goal, and this, this can be wonderful. It can, it can replace that amorphous feeling of what's this all about? What's this miserable ordeal that we're putting up with? Nobody seems to know what they're doing, just running around like chickens with their head chopped off, drinking and eating and smoking and distracting themselves with their various addictions. What's the point? Well, that's replaced with this goal. (laughs) It's good news. It's very good news. But as time goes by, you have to come to realize that that's an idea of the goal. That's not the goal. We don't know the goal. The Buddha knew the goal. Enlightened beings knew the goal. We know about the goal. We have an idea about the goal. And although we don't like to admit it, our ideas about reality are very different from reality. It's very obvious, you know, just for instance, like, you know, breakfast. <laughs> you can think about breakfast, but that's not breakfast. You know, breakfast is a completely different reality. You know, our breakfast is amazing. You know, I love breakfast. But the idea about breakfast is well, it's not much good, really. It's okay. It can remind the guy who's cooking it, maybe. <laughs> you know, get on with the reality of preparing breakfast. Ideas have their place, but they're a totally different reality. Our ideas about the goal are a completely different reality from the goal. We've got to get that message. We've really got to get that message. And so in the learning to give ourselves into the actual practice, not just thinking about the practice, and our cultivating in accordance with the spirit of practice, not just the forms. The forms, like the Tripitaka, all the words that the Buddha gave and all the teachings that have been recorded about practice, that's not the way. That's about the way. Now, very important, those teachings about the way. They point the way. I think it was Ospensky who said, 
Oh, maybe it was Gurdjieff, but I think it was Ospensky who, who talked about how, in the beginning, the goal of practice, with the, in regards to the goal of practice, we orient ourselves towards the future, sometime out there. The goal is somewhere out there. But if we're practicing rightly, the goal comes closer and closer until our goal is here, now. And that's important to understand. Because in the beginning, when we have an idea about the goal, we feel really good about it. We like the idea of the goal because it replaced that miserable feeling we had before of what's it all about. We didn't have any idea about the goal. When we have an idea about the goal, it feels good. But that's an initial. You know, that's like going to the doctor and getting the medicine. It's not taking the medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Taking the medicine means we've got to let go of the goal, the idea of the goal. Yeah. Now, that can feel threatening. It can feel threatening because the initial feel-good factor of having an idea about the goal, you say, I don't want to let go of it. I don't want to let go of my idea of the goal. It feels good. Well, it's like saying I don't want to grow up. We do need to grow up. We need to grow up and be willing to let go of the idea of the goal and start to apply attention here and now. Stop thinking about the goal. Now, because we stop thinking about the goal of practice... It doesn't mean to say that we think we've finished our work or we think we're enlightened or something. Letting go of the idea of the goal is growing up. We learn to trust. Hopefully, we learn to trust in our inclination towards the goal. We learn to trust in our movement towards the goal. When you're trusting, it means you've let go. And also, it means that we we've started to realise that it's an indulgence, the entertainment that comes, the spiritual entertainment of fantasising about the goal out there and out then is an indulgence. It's a luxury that maybe after a while we start to learn, we, we can't afford that. That's, that's an entertainment. Yeah. Practice means actually feeling the uncertainty. Well, maybe my idea of the goal is wrong. Maybe my idea that I can realise the goal is wrong. Those doubts need to be received here and now. They don't need to be believed. You don't want to believe them, but you don't want to disbelieve them. We need to be receiving them, receiving everything. Now we're cultivating the spirit of practice. So another image I like to reflect on that, that contains the spirit of this practice is like going on a journey. As you could, maybe you've heard about a place that's really nice to go to. Um, I have a, a very nice uh, experience when I went to this place up in the Scottish Highlands. There's a, a glen, Glen Lyon, that I've been to quite a number of times. A very beautiful Scottish glen and uh, this lovely forest and the light once you get up there in the Highlands is gorgeous and and the, the stream, the water runs off the hills. The whole experience is just just beautiful. And so maybe you've heard about Glen Lyon and you think, I'm going to go to Glen Lyon. Well, what's the way to get to Glen Lyon? I mean, it's a long way from here, quite a few hours. So you're going on this journey that you think is uh, worth going to. Well, the first thing you do is you study the map. That's appropriate. We study the map. That's appropriate. Look at the map. You know, to listen to the teachings, the, 
the encouragement of those who've gone on the journey before us. Like the Buddha said, I can but point the way. He said, I've been there. He said, I found this ancient city that nobody's been to for a long time. I found it and I can point the way. And so we listen to the Buddha's encouragement, or in this case, if you're going on a trip to Glen Lyon in the Scottish Highlands, we, we listen to the directions of those who've been there before. We look at the map. Yeah. But then you got, it gets to a point where you've got to put the map down. Yeah, right? You can't fixate on the map and keep driving, can you? Now, if you don't look at the map at all, say, oh, well, I'm just going to be creative about it. <laughs> kind of, let's, let's just you know, approach this in a kind of creative, authentic way. Smoke something before we set out on the journey. and You know, you're end up in Blackpool, you know, which may be beautiful, I don't know. I've not been to Blackpool, but it's not Glen Lyon. You know, goodness knows where you could end up. You could spend your life going around in circles and never end up in Glen Lyon. If you want to go to Glen Lyon, it's good to look at a map. It's good to listen to those who've been there before. But sooner or later, we've got to be willing to put the map down. Fixating on the map, it's dangerous. You can have an accident. You're always looking at the map. Drive off the road. That's dangerous. Also, similarly, fixating on fantasies we have about what it's going to be like when we get there. That's also dangerous. Oh, the air is so beautiful, the light is so vivid, the water runs off the mountains, the solitude, and it's dreaming away and bang, you hit the car in front of you. It's dangerous to, it's dangerous to fixate on our fantasies of what it's going to be like when we get there. It's dangerous to fixate on other people's encouragement, even the Buddha's encouragement. If we fixate on it, we can end up having an accident. So, in other words, the spirit of the practice is about using these things but letting go. Use but let go. Fixating on them means we're always checking, we're always going back. You're just never going to get anywhere. Yes, it's okay. Sometimes we stop and we park safely and we check the map and then we feel reassured again. Yes, we're going in the right direction. Yes, feel good again. And okay, take off again. And then maybe we start to doubt and say, oh, I'm not sure about this. And so we stop and we park safely and we look at the map and say, oh, yeah, I did that, did that, yeah, okay. And so, yeah. But we're not fixating on the forms, on the teachings, on the views and opinions about the journey. We're applying ourselves here and now to the journey. And now, just how much encouragement and reassurance we might need, how often we might need to refer to the map, or well, people are different. And uh, it's uh, important to understand that, you know, because we can be comparing ourselves to other people. You know, some people, they just read so much stuff. They've had so many initiations, they've been on so many retreats and had so many teachings and little old me, you know, I've only been to one or two monasteries and I don't even like retreats and I can't stand reading, but I'm really interested in practice. And I don't know, is that good enough? And we can start doubting if we think we've got to be like somebody else. Or for those who do have a a very strong appetite for uh, intellectual clarity or uh, certainty, given the scientific-based, evidence-based 
education that we've all had, well, it's understandable that we doubt a lot. You know, the scientific-based education's got a lot of advantages. But like anything that goes out of balance, it casts a big shadow. And the shadow of an imbalanced education is we think all the time and we doubt all the time. And so if you're one of those kind of characters, well, you've got to go back to the books all the time. You've got to keep stopping and checking the map all the time. That's all right if you like that. We need to, at a certain point, we need to gratify our intellectual curiosity and our intellectual doubts and find out for us individually how much do we need, how much of that reassurance and encouragement do we need and not judge ourselves for it. As I said, people are different. Comparing is natural. Yeah, perfectly natural. It's an aspect of our human intelligence to compare ourselves, within ourselves. Like, when I was four... I was totally dependent. When I was 14, I was a little less dependent, but I was really in a dark space. When I was 24, hmm, still pretty confused, but something started to make sense. Now I'm 64. Yeah, well, actually, I made some modest improvements in my life, and, and that's, that comparison is natural. That's, that's, that's perfectly suitable. But we can also get caught up in that comparing. We can get lost in it, judging ourselves. I should be better than I am, or I'm not as good as them. So getting lost in comparing, getting lost in judging, it again is a way of of abusing that faculty, that wonderful faculty that we have, that, that aspect of intelligence, which means that we can extrapolate based on past experience, we can extrapolate into the future and imagine how things could be otherwise and give rise to energy. But if we get lost in it, that's not wonderful anymore. That compulsive judging mind is a real pain. So learning to accept people are different. We're all different. I was talking with a good friend of mine, actually that monk in the photo, I was telling you about Ajahn Keveli, uh, he's visiting his, his, his mother in Germany at the moment and, and we were talking recently about a, um, some, uh, some commentary on the scriptures that somebody had, had uh, repeated to him. It hasn't been translated into English yet. It's from the Sri Lankan tradition. It's a commentary out of the uh, Anguta Nikaya and, and it's not available in English but the Sri Lankan monk was relating to Ajahn Kevali how there's these seven or eight different types or different approaches that monks have to practice. And uh, it describes them all and it talks about those monks who, during the day, they practice studying the scriptures. That's what they do. And then Pari is Pariyati, studying the scriptures. And then in the evening, uh, they sit and the mind settles and it gives rise to joy and gives rise to attainment. And then there are those monks who, well, they... They practice samadhi during the day, and that's all they do. They practice samadhi, 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 and then in the evening, at the end of the day, the mind is still, joy arises, and then then they attain. And then there's those who practice a commitment to vipassana meditation, and then in the evening, the mind settles, and there's joy, and then there's attainment. And then there's those who, 
who are busy doing upatakin duties, those monks who, who are looking after the other senior monks or the old monks or the unwell monks. And their duty during the day is to do upatakin or attendant duties. And then at the end of the day, having done their duties, the mind settles, joy arises, and they reach attainment. And then there's those monks who they spend the day doing building work. That's their duty in the building, repairing kutis and being active in that way. And then at the end of the day, they sit and the mind settles and joy arises and they find attainment. And I thought that was a very fitting example. Uh, now, a lot of you are not monks or nuns, but how the principle still applies that we're all different. Yeah. One of the dangers of the egalitarian values that we live with in our society is that we, we kind of flatten everything and make everything boring and the same. There's no texture, no contrast, like we're all the same, we're all doing the same thing. We're not. Fortunately, doctors are not hairdressers. Imagine what it would be like if everybody was a hairdresser. You know, yeah. People sometimes say, oh, what if everybody became a monk? And I say, well, what if everybody became an astronaut? I mean, that wouldn't be very good, would it? I mean, you know, everybody become an astronaut. You know, it's good that there's people running restaurants. It's good that people growing food. It's good that there's doctors. We're different. But if we have the right perspective on the form and the spirit of practice, then we can live together with a sense of mutual respect and, and concord and with harmony. And so this uh, compulsive judging disorder that comes as a result of the regrettably imbalanced education many of us had, this also is an aspect of practice. We bring mindfulness to it. If we're really applying ourselves to the journey, not just fixating on the map, not just fixating on our fantasies about what it's going to be like when we get enlightened, or I mean, letting go of those fixations, letting the goal get closer and closer until the goal is here and now, whole body, mind, judgment-free awareness, and we start to see this compulsive judging mind, compulsively comparing ourselves, endlessly comparing ourselves in a compulsive way, not a skillful way, you know, but a compulsive way. When we see we're doing it, when we see that we're doing that, in that moment of seeing, not idealizing, not theorizing, not thinking about how I shouldn't be judging and comparing, but actually being sufficiently present here and now, doing the practice, when we see that, that can precipitate a major shift in perspective, which is what we're looking for. That's the spirit, that's the point. Not just thinking about how letting go might be possible. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Namaya, namaya.